All right, good night. Good night. Uh, good night. See you later. Uh, good evening. Good to see everybody. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 2? Forgive me for repeating myself, but we never know who's turning it, tuning in for the first time online or whatever. So just briefly, we have uh, entered into the second major section of the book of Revelation, which is chapters 2 and 3, which deal with seven letters that Jesus dictated to seven real churches in the area of Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. As we said last time, when people think of the book of Revelation, if they have you know, are familiar with it. You mention it, they immediately think of chapters 6 through 19, which is what most people think of when they think of the book. Those are the cataclysmic judgments that God is going to pour out on this wicked, Christ-rejecting world someday, I believe, in the not-so-distant future. But as we've already pointed out, those chapters have nothing to do with us Christians living right now on the earth in the church age. At least I don't believe so. There are others who believe the church will go through the tribulation period. I am a staunch pre-tribber. I believe that the rapture will take place before the tribulation period begins. We'll see that clearly when we come to chapter 4. But last time in our study in the book of Revelation, we got as far as the letter to the church of Smyrna. Smyrna, a suffering church, a suffering church. As has already been pointed out when we started this second, ma second major section of Revelation, these seven letters were written to seven real churches with real problems and real things that uh, Jesus commended them for. But uh, these also have a historic application as well. They symbolically speak to different periods of church history from the apostolic period or the first century through the end of the church age which will be when the rapture takes place so right now the church age has lasted uh 2000 years and uh it could go on for many more although i don't think so i think the rapture is coming soon at least that's my conviction i could be wrong but um these seven churches it's a miracle uh how the holy spirit did this because not only are they seven real churches with seven real problems and so on and so forth, uh, but from start to finish, they chronicle all of church history from its beginning to its close. It's uh, remarkable. And um, you, you have to understand, in this order, uh, you know, the seven letters are in a specific order. Uh, you know, Ephesus through, uh, through Laodicea, um, and then everything in between, uh, well, first of all, for, for on a practical note, uh, these cities were in a circuit. It was the mail route for the area. And so, you know, typically how the mail was delivered in those days, uh, you had couriers that would go from city to city. Well, it was a big circuit, all right? Uh, so that's, you know, you'd say, well, that's why they're in the, the order they're in. Okay. However... Uh, from, from Ephesus to Laodicea, you have all of church history in view in a symbolic way. First of all, Ephesus was the church that had left its first love. And uh, this speaks of the apostolic period of church history from the church's birth 
uh, as we're going to see, uh, through about A.D. 63. Uh, this letter kind of focuses on, all right, uh, a period where the church had uh, kind of left its first love, followed by the church of Smyrna, which we studied last time, which we said was a suffering church. It speaks of the Christian church from around A.D. 64 through the end of the 4th century, a time when uh, it suffered great persecution at the hands of various Roman emperors. That brings us tonight to the church of Pergamus, which symbolically represents the Christian church during the 4th and 5th centuries A.D., where Christianity was recognized as the official religion of the state, a very dark period of church history. So the church of Pergamus, verse 12. Very simply, Jesus said, And to the angel of the church of, uh, of the church in Pergamus. Let me stop there. Let me talk briefly about the city of Pergamus. Then we'll talk about the church of Pergamus. The city of Pergamus. Pergamus was about 100 miles north of Ephesus with Smyrna located just about halfway between the two. Now, unlike Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamus had no port, okay? It had no port. It was not a port city, but was located about 15 miles inland from the Aegean Sea, and also was not on any major trade routes. Now, you would think that that would make it a poor church, but in reality, Pergamus was considered Asia's greatest city. The Roman writer Pliny called it by far the most distinguished city in Asia, or Asia Minor, or modern Turkey. Uh, this is partly because Pergamus was the Roman capital of Asia Minor, but also because it was a noted center of culture and education. Um, it had a, uh, it was, uh, it had a, um, uh, it, my notes here, I know that I have uh, something about their uh, library. I'll get to it in a second. But uh, it was a center of culture and education. Uh, it was also a very religious city. And it had temples to Dionysus, Athena, Demeter, Zeus, and three temples that were built for emperor worship. Big thing back then, okay? Now, some 50 years before Smyrna won the honor uh, of building the first temple to Tiberius, uh, Caesar Tiberius, to worship him, uh, Pergamus had already won the right to build the first temple to worship Caesar Augustus uh, in that uh, Roman province of that area of Asia. Uh, in addition, it had a special center for the worship of Asclepius. Now, Asclepius was the god of healing and learning, okay, but uh, knowledge. But uh, Asclepius was represented as a serpent on a pole. Does that ring a bell? Uh, remember Numbers 21 when the children of Israel complained against the Lord and he sent the fiery serpents that began to bite the people and they began to die and they cried out to Moses and Moses cried out to God and God says take a pole and place a brass serpent upon it erect it in the middle of the camp of Israel. Whoever is bitten by one of the serpents, if they will look upon the serpent on the pole, they will be healed. It all pointed to Christ. We're not guessing Jesus said that. In Matthew, in John chapter 3, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. You understand it. It's a picture of Christ. So uh, did they take that you know, imagery for the god Asclepius? Uh, 
probably took it from uh, the Jewish people. But uh, even to this day, uh, the American Medical Association has the uh, Esculapius, the, the serpent, uh, on a pole signifying healing and, uh, and knowledge, medical knowledge, no doubt. But um, this, this god of knowledge and healing, uh, there was a medical school in his temple. So they had Temple de Esculapius there in Pergamus, and there was a temple uh, in Pergamus where they, uh, they uh, performed... Um, uh, you know, they healed sicknesses and things. In fact, from what I understand, it was the lords of that part of the world. Remember Lords uh, France, where people claim Mary, Virgin Mary appeared years ago, and people go there to this day to receive healings. Um, I am not of the mindset that that was really Mary, or if anyone gets healed, it's not really God healing them. That's my conviction. The devil's always trying to get our eyes off of Jesus Christ onto everyone and everything other than him. And so, but, um, but, but from what I understand, this temple there in Pergamus to the god Asclepius was, uh, drew a lot of people from all over the known world there for healings. It was like the lords of the ancient world. Here it is. Pergamus was famous for its university with a library that boasted 200,000 volumes. And for manufacturing a parchment, okay, uh, sometimes called vellum. What is vellum? They're special animal skins that were prepared and used for writing. People would write on them, okay? So they were famous for this uh, parchment, and uh, it came to be known as pergamina, these uh, animal skins, this vellum that they used. In fact, to this day, when somebody gets a diploma from a college, often they call it a sheepskin. I got my sheepskin. Well, that's because they used to write on sheepskins and other animal skins back in those days. How about the Church of Pergamus? The book of Acts does not record the founding of the Church of Pergamus. According to Acts chapter 16, verses 7 and 8, Paul passed through Mysia. Mysia was the region where Pergamus was located in. So Paul did pass through Mysia, but we don't read on his second missionary journey, but we don't read anywhere in the book of Acts that he stopped there in Pergamus to preach the gospel or to plant a church. So how did it get founded? Most likely it was founded, the church of Pergamus was founded during Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Remember now, he spent more time in Ephesus than any other place he ministered, three years. And it says in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, the word of God went out from Ephesus all over that part of the world, which would have included Pergamus. It probably was a church plant from somebody that Paul had ministered to in Ephesus, uh, maybe an elder of Ephesus, or somebody went out preaching the gospel, and a church was founded there in Pergamus. Because the city of Pergamus was so steeped in paganism, the church there found itself surrounded by and continually exposed to its evil temptations. You know, as the church, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world, okay? And it's certainly okay for our, well, I'll use the example of a ship in the sea. It's perfectly okay for a ship to be in the sea, but watch out when the sea gets into the ship. And it's perfectly okay for a church to be, of Jesus Christ, to be in the world. That's what we're called to be in the world. But watch out when the world gets into the church. Now, they were surrounded by a lot of evil. I mean, this was a, uh, a stronghold for false religions and paganism. 
And it takes a very exceptional, strong church to remain in that environment and not to let it seep in to the church. Unfortunately, as we're going to see, that's what happened to the church in the Pergamus. Um, whereas the church of Smyrna was a persecuted church, and whenever a church is persecuted, it remains pure and strong. No wishy-washy, you know, counterfeit Christian wants to join a church where they're going to get persecuted. Okay? So it tends to weed out and drive out people who are not real, not committed, and it strengthens what remains. Smyrna was a suffering church, and as a result was they were a strong, thriving church. Small, but strong. All right? And God doesn't look at the numbers. He looks at the heart and how much people love him in a given church, whether it's five or 500 or 5,000 or whatever. It's all about the heart and how much people love Jesus in the church. Okay, So Smyrna faced an enemy from without, outside its walls. Pergamus, the church of Pergamus faced an enemy from within, from within the walls of their church, as we're going to see. So, Revelation 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things, says he, who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, guys, this comes out of the vision of Jesus given to John in chapter 1, verse 16. Remember, as we studied chapter 1 in the vision that uh, uh, God gave to John of the Lord Jesus Christ, all the aspects of Jesus in that vision, he takes each one and applies them to one of the churches. Uh, depending on what was going on in that church and how much that attribute of Christ uh, matched up what was going on, Jesus chose that to call himself by as he began to address the church. These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. A two-edged sword, of course, when we studied Smyrna, we said it spoke of the Word of God. Uh, one of the greatest examples of that would be Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word for sword in Revelation 2.12 is the Greek word rumphia. As we already have said, I'll just mention it again, a rumphia sword was a long, heavy, two-edged broadsword. It was held like a club. It was not a precision weapon, uh, like the machaira that the soldier wore on his belt, which was a small dagger. This was a, a, a long, heavy, two-edged sword. Uh, infantrymen would use it. They would grip it as they would run into battle, swinging it wildly. The idea was you wanted to take off a, a head or split a head in half or lop off an arm, it did, it did major damage. The whole point of the Rumphia sword was to, was to crush and destroy and to kill. It was not a precision instrument. The word that Jesus used for himself there in Revelation 2, verse 12, is Rumphia. This uh, He has this sharp two-edged sword uh, that he is coming with. Uh, this description of Jesus Christ pictures him as a judge and executioner. We know that in Revelation 19, verse 15, when John is describing the second coming, as Jesus is coming now with his church and angels through the clouds to the earth to establish his kingdom, he said, from his mouth comes 
a sharp sword. Again, the Greek is rumphaya. So that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the, of God the Almighty. He's talking about when Jesus returns, the first thing he's going to do is judge his enemies. He's going to wipe them out. And uh, the imagery is with the sword that proceeds out of his mouth. But it's not, that's symbolism. It's the word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. The same word that he spoke that created everything in the first place is the same word he's going to use to speak and vaporize his enemies before he establishes his kingdom. Guys, let me just say this. This is not in a positive, uplifting, comforting thing to begin the letter to this church with. You don't want Jesus Christ saying to your church, I'm coming and I'm bringing a sword. Uh-oh. That's not good. Okay? So this was not a positive, encouraging introduction. It's a threatening one. One author put it this way. He said, it is the first negative introduction of Christ because the church in Pergam has faced imminent judgment. Disaster loomed on the horizon for this worldly church. It was and is but a short step from compromising with the world to forsaking God altogether and facing his wrath, end quote. But even in Pergamus, there were some things the Lord could commend them for. And don't you know our Lord Jesus Christ, you know, we tend to speak in these um, terms where we're mad at somebody and it's like they always, they never. That's not true, okay? We tend to want to write off anything positive and just focus on the negative. Well, Jesus doesn't do that, okay? Yeah, he knows what's going on that's wrong, but he does want to encourage the church over what's right. And so he does have some things that he wants to say to commend this church. First of all, verse 13, he said, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. What does it mean that they lived where Satan's throne is? Well, that's easy. It was Las Vegas. No, I don't think they had Las Vegas back then. What does it mean that they live where Satan's throne is? In fact, twice in verse 13, Jesus says that Pergamus was somehow a place where Satan dwelt. Or in other words, was a stronghold of satanic power and influence. But how? Uh, you know, what, what exactly was going on that Jesus would say, you know, I know where you guys live. I know how hard it is for you. You're living where Satan's throne is. Well, there's several views uh, on this, and I'll just give you what uh, author Mark Hitchcock says. He presents the top four views. Let me read them to you. Number one, Pergamus was the seat of the worship of Aesculapius, a Greek god portrayed by the image of a snake. A temple to Aesculapius was located there. In the minds of Christian believers, the tie between Aesculapius and serpents would connect Pergamus with Satan. Okay. Number two. The great altar of Zeus, which rose, this is amazing, to a height of 40 feet, was located on the Acropolis of Pergamus. Since Zeus was considered the king of the gods, this could have singled out Pergamus as Satan's throne. Number three, Pergamus was filled with the temples and idols of many gods, such as, again, Aesculapius, Zeus, Athena, Dionysus, Demeter, this city may have been the most outwardly pagan of the ones mentioned in Revelation 2 
and three, which could have qualified it to be the seat of Satan's throne. And then number four, emperor worship was prominent in Pergamus. It was an official center of the imperial cult, a cult of, cult of emperor worship. We'll talk about that more in a second. The author goes on to say, any of these views are possible, but I favor the second view. The presence of this impressive altar to Zeus and its prominence in the city made Pergamus a uniquely pagan place to such an extent that it was as if Satan had set up his headquarters there, end quote. All right, any of those could be what's in view. I'll share with you another interpretation that I thought was very interesting, and I think, I'm not sure, I think I got this from Chuck Missler. Uh, going back years, I, I think I remember Chuck mentioning this, and so I've written it down and I, I've kept it in my notes. The first time we are introduced in Scripture to the concept of a satanic stronghold or the idea of a place where Satan's throne was located, I think would go back to Genesis chapters 10 and 11. Genesis chapters 10 and 11, where we see a man named Nimrod who built the Tower of Babel. This was a tower, guys, that didn't reach, listen, up into heaven, as the King James Bible seems to imply. It was rather a tower that reached up into the heavens, in other words, into the sky, like a skyscraper from which people would ascend steps. And these uh, towers, they're called ziggurats, were not uncommon in the ancient world. Large towers with steps going up. And uh, priests would ascend uh, these uh, ziggurats, and they would uh, worship the sun, moon, and all the stars of heaven. That kind of thing it was a place to go where you could worship uh, you know, the gods of the universe. It's kind of how they looked at it, okay? Again, this was a tower known as a ziggurat. Now, Nimrod was the first cult leader in Scripture. We, he might have been the very first cult leader uh, in the history of the world. I think he probably was. We know for sure he was the first cult leader mentioned in the Bible. Which says of him, and I'm quoting Genesis chapter 10, verse 9, which says of Nimrod, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now you read that and go, well, the guy was a pretty good hunter, you know. He bagged some big game, probably had heads on his walls, you know, of a certain, uh, a certain wild game. The Hebrew actually says uh, that he was a mighty hunter of men's souls in defiance of the Lord. This is a pretty bad dude, okay. Some believe he could have even been inhabited and dwelt by the devil himself. And we'll see why they believe that as we move on. So he built the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel eventually became known as the area of Babylon. All right, Babylon. The place, guys, where all false religions and religious systems got their start. The seat of all occult and devil worship. A place that could rightly be called Satan's throne. Why don't you turn to Revelation 17 for a second. Now, Revelation 17 and 18 are going to be important chapters. We'll see them when we get there. But 
Chapter 17 deals with the one world religion. Chapter 18 deals with the one world government. And in chapter 17, John sees this vision of a woman who's riding a beast. I'll let you look at it and dig it out for yourself. He says in verse 5, On her forehead there was a name which was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. You have to understand something. Babylon spawned every false religious system that has ever existed. It started right there. That's why I say it's very possible that could be what's in view. That, that could definitely be the, the seat of Satan, his headquarters, from which he disseminated throughout the world all kinds of false religious systems and beliefs. All right? But you have to understand, in the book of Revelation, we see, listen, the culmination and the convergence of all false religious systems, which got their start at the Tower of Babel, later Babylon, into one all-encompassing one-world religion. It's like they went out for centuries, and now they're coming back, and when we get to Revelation, uh, during the reign of Antichrist, they all converge, they all merge, and together they become the one-world religion that seems that every follower of the Antichrist will be involved in except the true believers which will not worship uh, the, the, the Antichrist. That's part of this religious system that will uh, become the one world religion. They're going to worship him as God. Not believers won't. They won't take his mark. They're going to be uh, beheaded for their witness and so on, their testimony, and uh, become uh, tribulation uh, martyrs and saints. But um, it's interesting, though. Just hear me out. Alexander Hyssop, in his classic work, The Two Babylons, spends a lot of time documenting how that when Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians, the pagan priests of the ancient mystery-slash-occult religions centered in Babylon, all the way back since the days of Nimrod, were forced to migrate north and west to Pergamos, where these mystery religions were headquartered for the next few centuries. The pagan high priest in Pergamus called himself Pontifex Maximus. Pontifex Maximus. The Latin word for priest is Pontifex, which literally means bridge builder. A priest was a bridge builder, or in other words, the priest bridged the gap between God and men. Men were not, uh, were not worthy to come directly to uh, the gods or, the, the, or a god. They needed a priest, a go-between. Now, whether you're talking about the priests of God Almighty in the Old Testament, uh, they were bridge builders too because they were not worthy to come directly to God. They needed a go-between. Of course, when Jesus came as our great high priest, he laid his cross, as it were, across the gulf between God and man, and now we have access to God through the blood of Christ. We are now a kingdom of priests. We don't need any special order of clergy. We've talked about this that is in itself... Uh, holy enough and worthy enough to approach God for the rest of us because we're not. Uh, that is not true anymore. But in those days, a priest, whether you're talking about a Jewish priest or a pagan priest, they were bridge builders. They bridged the gap between God and man and allowed man to have fellowship with whatever God or gods, if they were Jewish, the living and true God, of course. But uh, the pontifex Maximus, guys, was the chief bridge builder 
or the great high priest of a religious system. And then when Rome, excuse me, then when Rome rose to power, these priests of the mystery religions of Babylon, which then moved to Pergamos, eventually migrated to Rome, following, as they always do, the wealth and power. And this happened around 378 A.D. Bear with me, I'm going somewhere with this, okay? It's important that we understand this history. To fully understand what Jesus is talking about and is referring to in this letter, we have to look at church history. Because in a symbolic way, the letter to the church in Pergamos represents that period of church history from about 313 to 600 A.D. We know the church was born in 32 A.D. on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2. And initially the gospel went forth with such power, didn't it? I mean, the dynamic of the Holy Spirit upon these early Christians was amazing. Absolutely remarkable. And so initially, the gospel went forth with such great power. And so many people started getting saved around the Roman Empire that Satan, I believe, panicked. He panicked and tried to destroy the church and Christianity with a direct frontal assault. And so he moved in the hearts of ten Roman emperors who unleashed ten waves of persecution against the church starting with Nero in 64 A.D. and culminating with Diocletian in 311 A.D. But to Satan's dismay, the more he persecuted the church, the stronger it got and the more it grew. So he decided to try a different tactic. Instead of a direct frontal assault, he decided, if I can't beat him, I'll what? I'll join him. If Satan couldn't destroy the church from without... He would marry it and corrupt it from within. And this is how he did it. By the beginning of the 4th century AD, the Roman Empire was in decline. After the reign of Diocletian from 303 to 311 AD, there was a power struggle between two of his generals, Constantine and Maxentius, for who would be the next Roman emperor. Constantine's father had uh, prospered when he prayed to the God of the Christians. And so he thought, well, I'll give it a try. So he prayed to the God of the Christians, all right? The next day, he supposedly saw a vision of a flaming cross in the sky with the words in Latin underneath it, which said, by this symbol, you will conquer. He went on to defeat Maxentius at the Milvian Bridge and immediately declared his conversion to Christianity, even though, listen, he continued to worship the sun god and never really gave any evidence that he was born again. He assumed headship of the church, taking the title, this is the Christian church now, taking the title Pontifex Maximus, which means the supreme or highest priest. It was the Roman emperors. This is something a lot of people don't, don't know. It was the Roman emperors who were first called the vicars of Christ. A title inherited by the popes when the Roman Empire disintegrated. Constantine's title of Pontifex Maximus was also taken by the popes. Thus the head of the Roman Catholic Church is called 
Pontifex Maximus, or the Roman Pontiff to this day. Constantine immediately rescinded all the laws that allowed for the persecution of Christians passed by his predecessor Diocletian and replaced them with what was called the Edict of Milan, also called the Edict of Toleration, which forbade the persecution of Christians. The result was that Christianity became the official religion of Rome and Christians were given high-level jobs in the Roman government. Constantine then Christianized paganism. Why did he do that? You have to understand, he wanted to unify the empire. He wanted to bring pagans and Christians together, thus making a strong unified empire. Yeah, back then, you have to understand, they didn't work five days and get a couple days off. Many of them were slaves. They worked constantly. The only time off they really got was during the feasts. All right? Those were huge. You couldn't take the feast. They would revolt. Okay? That was the only thing they, they lived for. They looked forward to these various feasts. Okay? And so Constantine, who was a sharp guy in a lot of ways, he decided that he would try to Christianize these pagan uh, feast days and holidays. He took the pagan festival of Saturnalia, which was a winter solstice festival, festival celebrated uh, between December 21st and 26th, uh, celebrated with mistletoe, mistletoe, yule logs, decorated evergreen trees. Sound familiar? This became a celebration of Christ's birth known as Christmas. The festival, festival of Ashtart, who was a fertility goddess. Uh, her her uh, festival was celebrated with rabbits and colored eggs and symbols of fertility. It took place in the spring. Well, he Christianized that and made it the celebration of Christ's resurrection. What better time to do that? Uh, she's a fertility goddess, new life. Jesus rose from the dead. Let's just tack, make an Easter, celebration of the resurrection. Sounds almost like Ashtart, Easter. Kind of sounds the same, right? Pagan temples were turned into Christian churches. Pagan priests became Christian priests, quote-unquote. In effect, he married the church with the state. Satan figured, if I can't beat them, I'll join them. Donald Gray Barnhouse, who has written one of the best commentaries on Revelation you're going to find anywhere, he said concerning this, and I'm quoting, Imagine the whispering that went on around Rome. The emperor had become a Christian. Out of the catacombs they came. Instead of being persecuted, they found themselves popular. That's the worst place for the church to be in. Like a youngster among heavy drinkers, the church's head was turned by the wine of the world. The priests of the pagan temples had been paid from the purse of the empire, but now Caesar was a Christian. And the priests of Mars and Venus hastened to their baptism. All these pagan priests became Christian priests. Okay, Because after all, Constantine, the emperor, was a Christian. And they wanted to get paid by the state. All right? For the first time in the history of the church, salaries were paid to Christian workers. Tradition says... As tradition has it that Constantine's mother was the first to give the money for the erection of a church building. Before, kitchens and catacombs, humble dwellings, or humbler dungeons, 
had echoed with the quiet hymns of the believers whose songs of praise were frequently changed to the shout of the martyr as the believers were dragged forth to the arena. All this was over now. The rags of persecution gave way to softer garments, and the church began to enjoy the feel of silk upon its flesh. The church was married to the world, end quote. Guys, the word Pergamus, in each of the names of these churches, is significant. The word Pergamus comes from two Greek root words. Per, which means mixed or objectionable, and gamos, the Greek word for marriage. You hear that in things like monogamy, uh, polygamy, bigamy. That Greek word for marriage is in there. Therefore, Pergamus, guys, literally means a mixed or objectionable marriage. This is the very thing that we have been forbidden from taking practice in. We think of the marriage of believer and unbeliever. Yeah, that's uh, part of it. Back then, it was the marriage of the church with the state. Uh, again, a, a mixed or objectionable uh, union or marriage. Turn to 2 Corinthians 6. Very familiar passage on this subject, 2 Corinthians 6, where Paul deals with this directly and in no uncertain terms, starting with verse 14. He said, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial or Satan? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. God had said very specifically we were not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We were not to partner with them. This falls right in line with what the church of Pergamos fell into. But going back to the days of Constantine once again, now that Christianity had become the official religion of the Roman Empire, it was now in vogue to be a Christian. No more suffering church. Smyrna, that's over. Now we have Pergamos, where the devil couldn't beat us by persecuting and killing Christians. Now he marries the church. And it's never good when the church marries the world, ever. It was now in vogue to be a Christian. Oh, many pagans, including again pagan priests, underwent the rite of water baptism and joined the church. And for the first time in the church's history, it was filled with pagans who called themselves Christians. Now Jesus had warned us of this very thing, right? He warned us, his disciples, that Satan would eventually use this tactic against us. He warned us of this in the parable of the tares and the wheat, right? How he said that, you know, and I'll just I'll tell you the, the uh, interpretation. The Lord Jesus said that the devil would eventually sow unbelievers or his people in among God's people in an effort to corrupt the church. This is the very thing we're talking about. Jesus warned us of this very thing, yet the church fell into this. 
And as Satan corrupted a large segment of the church by marrying Christianity with paganism, the result being, listen, the birth of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, I'm not a rabid anti-Catholic guy. I was raised in the Catholic Church. My wife and I were married in the Catholic Church. We loved the church until we started reading the Bible and realized that the church had taught us a lot of right things, but it taught us many other things that were not right not the least of which was how to get to heaven. A small thing, right? The church, Roman Catholic Church, mixed works with grace. And in Catholic theology, that's how a person gets to heaven. It's the grace of God, but they define grace as things you earn. Grace means a free gift. The Roman Catholic Church defines grace as uh, you know something that you work for by doing your good works going to church lighting candles praying rosaries and so on and so forth you earn little installments of grace that accrue to a point where you then purchase your salvation that is about as big a heresy as you can get salvation is a free gift we don't do anything but believe and we believe by reaching out and saying lord i believe in you as we reach out by faith, he gives us eternal life. We do nothing. We just believe in him. But this was all the beginning of the birth of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, this eventually led to a civil war within the church called the Protestant Reformation. And we'll talk more about that when we get to the letter to Sardis. All right. But look, we're still looking at the commendation of Jesus to the church of Pergamos. Again, verse 13. Jesus said, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, Nothing certain is known about Antipas apart from this text. He was probably one of the leaders of the Pergamus church. According to tradition, he was roasted to death inside a brass bull during the persecution of Emperor Diocletian. From what I understand, I'm not sure this was the only place they had these things, but they casted a bull uh, in two parts with a hollowed out inside and uh, they had a, uh, a hinge on it and so a person was stuck put inside this brass bull and there's maybe other animals that they had cast to, for this martyr martyring of Christians put the person inside the bull close it up lock it and then stick it in a fire roasting the person to death and by the way if you wanted to escape that fate, just renounce your faith. That's all you had to do. Renounce Jesus Christ. And they would take you right out of that thing before they put it in the fire and release you. That's what they wanted. They wanted to break the church. They wanted to, you know, and, and yet there were faithful men and women like Antipas who would not renounce his faith. Of course, all the apostles died pretty terrible deaths because they wouldn't recant and renounce their faith either. Jesus said, You didn't deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr. 
Martyr is a translation of the Greek word martis, which means witness. However, because standing up and being a witness for Jesus back then meant you were probably going to be killed for your faith, the word became synonymous with uh, for a person dying for their faith, a martyr. It, the word technically means a witness. But when you stood up to be a witness for Christ, to give testimonies, the idea that he was real, you might have been an eyewitness to the resurrection. Those believers that stood up and gave witness of Jesus Christ were often killed for their faith. And so the word witness, martyr, martis, became synonymous with someone who dies for the Christian faith, for Christ. But here was a man who paid the ultimate price for his refusal to compromise, Anipus. The name Antipas means against all. Against all. He was a man who didn't subscribe to the philosophy, if everyone's doing it, it must be right. Or let's just, you know, let's just go along to get along. Do you know how many Christian pastors seem to have that philosophy stamped across their ministry? They don't want to offend anybody. They want to keep everything real positive. I can think of one pastor of a very large church in Texas who shall go nameless. Never says anything negative. It's always very positive. Let's go along to get along. Well, that was not Antipas. And Jesus Christ commended him for his courage and his faithfulness. He wasn't a man pleaser. He was not a man pleaser. He stood with the Lord against the world. We need more men and women like Antipas today. Against all. You know? Why did his parents name him that? Here's my son, against all. You know, there's a lot of rebels whose name is against all. And that's bad. They're against the police. They're against society they're you know they're against everything we we would call decent and good many of these folks they're they're anarchists they're rebels they're against all that's good and that's bad but it's good to be against all if the all you're against is the world and all of its evil things and practices especially the world that is trying to stop out christians and we're moving now in that direction aren't we it's interesting how the 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 force is being directed you know was the police and now it's being directed against the church the christians this is going to get worse before it gets better are we ready for the persecution that's coming are we going to be antipas against all and stand with jesus against the world we need to pray now for the grace to do it but antipas faithfulness and courage were a rebuke to the so-called christians in pergamus who had sold out and fallen into compromise with the world jesus said antipas my faithful martyr who was killed among you where satan dwells look satan is not omnipresent like god god is omnipresent his presence fills the universe all right He's everywhere. In fact, he's not just omnipresent in the present. 
He's omnipresent throughout all of time and eternity. And that's just how he is, okay? But Satan is not omnipresent like God. He can only be in one place at one time. Remember the book of Job. You can look this up on your own after study or this week. Job chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Remember that incredible scene where it says that there came a day when the sons of God, the title for angels, came to present themselves to the Lord because they got to report in. These guys can't act independently, you know, just do their own thing. They got to report in, and so does Lucifer. And it says, and so here comes Lucifer reporting in. And the Lord said to him, Lucifer, where you been? Like God didn't know. Well, I've been cruising around the earth to and fro, back and forth. What have you discovered? Have you seen my servant Job? And it goes on from there. But the idea is he can't, he's not everywhere at once. He's got to cruise around back and forth to and fro. Now you say, would that limit him? I don't really think that much because he's got a network of demons throughout the entire world. And they communicate. And I don't think they use cell phones. I think they communicate through thought. So it's almost like being everywhere at the same time. But not quite. Okay? So Satan can only be in one place at a time. And at this time in history, his headquarters seem to have been placed there in Pergamos. And I think we've just uncovered some of the reasons why. All right. So that was the commendation. Now, how about the condemnation? Remember we said that each of these letters follows a pattern. Uh, the commendation comes before the condemnation. And so in verse 14 we read, After Jesus commended them, he said, But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Now, guys, this comes out of Numbers chapters 22 through 24 and chapter 31 of the book of Numbers. You don't have to turn there. You can write down the references and look them up later. But you remember the story. We covered it when we were in Jude not that long ago, where Balaam, who was a prophet of God, tried unsuccessfully to prostitute his prophetic gift and curse Israel because he wanted the money that King Balak, the king of Moab, was offering him if he came and cursed God's people because Balak knew he could not win against these people in a, in a, a battle. They were too strong. God was too strong on their side. He knew that Balaam was a prophet of God and uh, therefore had certain powers, I guess, and so he wanted to pay him money to come curse the people of God. Initially, Balaam said no, but then his greed got the best of him. And so he went, and you remember the story, how that uh, the king took him to four different mountains uh, overlooking the valley where the children of Israel, Israel were encamped. And four different times, he starts to curse the people, but God stops him and puts a blessing in his mouth. Here, you know, Balak's giving this guy good money. To curse the people. And so he brings them up there. Okay, let him, let him have it. Curse them. And he starts blessing them. Balak said, what are you doing? I, the Spirit of God came upon me. I, you know, I had to say what the Spirit wanted me to say. Takes him to a second mountain, a third, a fourth. Same thing the whole time. Finally, Balak is beside himself. He's so furious. And Balaam says, look. Uh, he, um, he, he said, look. These are God's people. There is no curse, hex, incantation in the world that will work against them. But I'll tell you what. 
I'm going to tell you what you can do, Balak, that will cause God to curse his people himself. Now, what Balaam told Balak, Jesus says here, he calls this, uh, this um, strategy, he calls it the doctrine of Balaam in verse 14. He told Balak to send some of his prettiest young women into the camp of Israel, begin to flirt with the Israeli men. When they got them all worked up, then have them pull out their little idols, which they always had with them, and say to the men of Israel, how would you like to see how we worship our gods? Now, most of these gods were gods of, and, and goddesses of fertility. And they were worshipped through sexual practices and even sexual orgies. Well, of course, the men of Israel had never worshipped like that before. The God of Israel never was never worshipped in a sexually perverse way. This was something brand new. And it really released all this sexual uh, passion to have this un to, to, to worship gods that allow you to worship them through sexual practices was something that Israel had never known. And these men were completely taken captive with this new kind of religion. Of course, the women of Moab, being pagan women, they knew how to seduce, they knew how to arouse sexual passions, and they won the hearts of the Israeli men. Many of them, not all, but many of them wound up marrying these, uh, these uh, women of Moab. This is kind of the background. That's why I'm going through this, okay? Um, they began to marry these unbelieving pagan women of Moab. Now, in the eyes of God, these unlawful marriages of God's people with pagans, strictly forbidden in the law of Moses for God's people to marry unbelievers, resulted in a defiled union of Israel with the world and planted within the nation of Israel the seeds of its own destruction. Satan knew this, okay? Part of those seeds were how that now it, uh, it led God's people into idolatry as his pe people worshipped false gods of the Moabites. Again, many fertility gods and goddesses. They worshipped these deities uh, through sexual orgies and other lewd sexual practices why did jesus bring this old testament historical event up and apply it to the believers at pergamos now when i was studying this last time i taught revelation here it hit me well okay lord i know the story in the old testament about what happened balaam balak and so on why are you bringing this up and applying it to the church there in Pergamos. And I believe it was because of this. Because a group in that church said, there's nothing wrong with being friendly to Rome. Because, you know, in any church you have those people that want to be pure, they want to be separate, and then you have people that don't really see it's a problem that we may be 
partner with the world a little bit. You know, compromise. Doesn't that show Christian love? We compromise a little bit. We're not so black and white and so on, you know, and, 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 and we embrace homosexuals and we don't say homosexuality is a sin. And, 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 and that's how we win people to, with our love. And There's always those folks. And I'm not going to challenge the motive of their hearts. I'm not gonna, I don't know their hearts. I'm going to assume they're being sincere. I am going to challenge the methods that they employ to get to the end that they want to get to, seeing people saved, if that's what's really in their heart. I often don't believe that's what's going on. They want to partner with the world because they don't want to be ostracized by the world. They don't want people to look down on them. A lot of people who go to church are band pleasers. They want people to like them. And by coming out too hard on certain issues, black and white, uh, you know, you're ostracized. And people won't like me. And I can't deal with that kind of a thing. It takes a strong person to be an Antipas. Uh, especially in the days we're moving into, right? But um, some of these Christians in this church apparently said, look, it's nothing, it's nothing wrong with being friendly to Rome. What harm is it? Uh, is there in putting a pinch of incense uh, into the fire before the altar of Caesar and saying, uh, Kaiser Kurias, which means Caesar is Lord. Remember, we talked about this uh, when we studied the church of Smyrna. How that, uh, Rome didn't care who you worshipped. They were very polytheistic. They could care less what God or gods you worshipped. As long as once a year you stood before a bust of Caesar with a little flame in front of it and put a pinch of incense into the fire and, and said the words that basically meant Caesar is Lord. And go worship whoever you want. But they realize, and rightly so, a people will never rebel against their gods. A people will never rebel. If you can get people to believe that Caesar is a god, you're going to be loyal to Rome for the rest of your life. You'll never rebel against your gods. Now, most of the Caesars knew they weren't god. Some of them were a little nutty, though, and really believed it. You know, Caesar Augustus. That means august one, the divine one. I think some of these characters really believed they were gods. So that, that was the, the, way behind, the idea behind this. And no doubt there's a lot of Christians who said, what do I care if I put a little pinch of incense in the fire before the bust of Caesar once you say Caesar is Lord? I know he's not Lord. Yeah, but what about your witness? What about your witness? Now, Antipas refused to compromise and was martyred. But others took the easy way and cooperated with Rome. The Lord accused the Christians in Pergamus of sinning, of committing, as the New King James translated it, of committing sexual immorality. But the King James simply translates it fornication. And I like that translation better. Because sexual immorality, which could be included in the word of the Greek, is not limited to sexual immorality. It could, it could represent, in a spiritual sense, spiritual unfaithfulness and that was really the issue that jesus was addressing in pergamos uh, i don't know if there were any christians who were physically having sex with pagan women i would doubt it but in their hearts they were committing a spiritual fornication unfaithfulness to their to the god who they pledged loyalty to god almighty jesus christ by saying caesar is lord they were violating that of course, this compromise made them welcome in the Roman guilds. Remember that? That's why the Church of Smyrna was so poor. 
Uh, every guild, which is, was the forerunners of our trade unions, had a patron god or goddess. And every morning they would stand before this god or goddess and they would pledge allegiance together uh, as members of this guild to Apollo or Zeus or Athena or somebody. Well, the Christians wouldn't do that. So they couldn't work in these guilds, which meant they were poor. Today we're being told if you're poor, you're not right with God. They were poor because they were very right with God. So by compromising, they were able to work, be a part of these guilds. And also it protected them from Roman persecution because they had confessed Caesar as Lord. But it cost them their testimony, their witness, and their crown, their heavenly rewards. Look, we're done, but let me just say this. God has placed his church in the world to be a light, to be a witness to the world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We are to remain separate from the world. Satan is always trying to dim or to extinguish our light altogether so people don't get saved and God isn't glorified. And the quickest way for him to do that is to get us to compromise or partner with the world. Compromise with or partner with the world. Guys, whenever the church marries the world to do the work of God, the church always suffers. The world never suffers. It's always the church. When I was recovering from my knee replacements several years ago, I read the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, written by Eric Metaxas, great writer, okay? And um, as I was reading this about that World War II period, he brought out how, that, how the state church in Germany performed when Hitler rose to power. Much of the clergy kept quiet or even justified what Hitler did because their salaries were being paid by the state. Their livelihood dependent, dependent on them you know, staying in, on the good side of the government, the state. Recently, the government offered money to businesses and churches actually fell into this category. Offered money to churches to help them through the financial crisis caused by the coronavirus lockdown. They had set aside so many millions or billions to help small businesses. Churches fell into this because churches have employees too and you know, you're having a hard time paying your employees. We're going to give you a subsidy, a grant, something you don't have to pay back and you can use that money to pay your bills and, and keep the lights on and pay the mortgage and pay your employees and so on and so forth. Well, our accountant, who's a, it's a wonderful gal, um, uh, but not a Christian, she um, texted me and said, Phil, there's this program. And she gave me the name I forgot and uh, you know you should apply for it the government's going to give money for you know, to churches and, and I texted her back and I said thank you so much what I'm about to tell you may seem a little goofy but I, I will never take money from the government to do anything for the church we have a heavenly father that takes care of all of our needs I don't need to look to the government for anything 
I, I, I told her thank you. She, was, she had good intentions. In my heart, that is anathema. Now, I'm not putting down any pastor who took the money. Different convictions. You know, uh, George Muller said he would never ask any man for anything to do the work of God. D.L. Moody, he thought there was something wrong with your walk if he didn't ask people for money for the work of God. Two very godly men. Okay, different people have different convictions. I'm not going to put down somebody who has a different conviction about this than I do. This is my conviction. I, am, I will never ask the government for anything to do the work of God. It's his church. He'll take care of it. I just Once you start partnering with the government, all of a sudden they get their little tentacles and everything you're doing, and pretty soon you're answering to them and not to God. Keep your money. Thank you very much. We'll just trust God. So we'll have to leave it there, guys. Come on back next week, and we will finish this letter and get into... The next, which is the letter to Thyatira, you're going to find that very interesting, okay, and what it really symbolizes. So let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is truth. We ask you, Lord, to give us a voracious hunger and appetite for your word, that we would feed upon it constantly, and by your grace apply it consistently into our lives. We thank you, Lord, for this time. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word and lord we pray that you would pour out your spirit in a way we've never seen before starting with this weekend uh, with the outreach with mike and the worship team that lord you will draw people from all over this area to come and hear the gospel that you will just drive them they might even realize why they're coming but they have to be here that you would get them your word your gospel they would get saved so we thank you, Lord. We ask you for good weather on that Saturday evening and uh, keep us all safe and healthy. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.